If you've read the Gospel of Matthew or been anywhere near a church around Christmas time, you've heard how Jesus fulfills a prophecy of the Messiah's virgin birth. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It's a miraculous sign that this baby is special and that this is the child the Israelites had been waiting for. But is that what the prophecy actually said? When you look at discussions of the original passage Matthew is quoting, there's a lot of heated debate about whether it's a prophecy pointing to Jesus at all. While most Christian Bibles render Isaiah 7.14 like how we see in Matthew's Gospel, the Jewish Bible takes a slightly different interpretation with major implications. Behold, the young woman is with child, and she shall bear a son, and she shall call him Emmanuel. With a few small words, a world of difference is made clear. There's no miracle virginal conception. There's just simply a woman already pregnant that has nothing to do with Jesus. What does this passage actually say? Is it just a piece of history or is it a messianic prophecy? Is this passage talking about a pregnant woman or a virgin giving birth to the Savior? This debate is nothing new. The translation of this verse has been an arguing point between Jews and Christians since the beginning of Christianity. We can see this as early as the second century with Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trypho. The conversation between Justin the Christian and Trypho the Jew cover issues between the two faiths, many of which are still debated today. One of those issues was Jesus' conception and the true meaning of Isaiah 7.14. Trypho accuses Christians of copying stories of miraculous divine birth from Greek mythology to give more authority to their Messiah, while Justin accuses Jews of distorting the translation of the passage to dismiss Jesus as the fulfillment of this prophecy. These kinds of quarrels continue even today, with both traditions carrying strong convictions. In extreme cases, those convictions led to drastic demonstrations. In 1952, conservative Protestants even burned copies of the RSV Bible because they translated virgin as young woman. Clearly, this is really serious for a lot of people. Why do people care this much that they're willing to burn Bibles over the translation of one word? Well, for some Christians, this debate feels so crucial because it directly impacts the way we understand Jesus and the Bible. The Old Testament is host to hundreds of prophecies that Christians see as pointing to Jesus, so much so that the unlikeliness of one person fulfilling them all is often seen as a core reason we can know Jesus was legit. If we start poking holes into those prophecies, it starts to feel like we're doubting who Jesus was. An attack on a prophecy about Jesus' divine origin is interpreted as an attack on Jesus' divine nature itself. Even more so, if core prophecies like this one that are directly referenced by the gospel writers as prophecy suddenly turns out to be something completely different, then that calls into question the credibility of Matthew as a writer and the gospels as God's inherent word. 
there's another side to this story too that is equally, if not more important to hear. There's like specific passages where I can point to and say, this is really weird the way you've interpreted this. This is my friend Abram. He's a reformed Jew who grew up in the heart of the Bible Belt, and his experience with Isaiah 7.14 and many other of these supposed prophetic passages are very different from mine. I feel that it detracts a lot of meaning to stories that are very important. It's a lot of one culture, um, to Patos especially. For him, the way Christians use these passages as some kind of proof text for Jesus betrays what's at the heart of the Jewish origins. It takes a lot of meaning out of the original stories because they weren't written as prophecies. They weren't written as foreshadowing. They were written as a book of proverbs for a people that was meant to stand on its own. And before that, they were oral traditions for people who spent a lot of time traveling to stand on their own as their own stories, as their own arcs, as their own characters, and to metaphysically represent our own ideas and our own philosophies related to those stories in the same way they are for any other stories from any other culture. And they are stories about people that belonged to us. And stories about families that came from us. So to see them kind of be propped up for an entirely different oral tradition as the sort of background like set dressing, it takes a lot of the emotional weight, a lot of the historical, a lot of the philosophical, a lot of the religious weights out of stories that are built to be their own living, breathing creature that belong to an entirely separate group of people. It feels sort of like a form of colonization in a way, to where instead of having your own stories or having just your stories stand on their own, Christian scholars have to go back and take other people's stories as foreshadowing. And it feels... Kind of makes it feel like your like Christian scholars are scared that their religion can't stand on its own. They have to find some basis for it. Well, I I don't want to go out of my way to insult your faith. No, hey, there will so, there will not be any offense taken here. All right. Okay. Because it's not the fact that like that's a person you believe in that's insulting. It's using someone that we very deeply believe in who is very tied to like the beginning of our culture and very tied to like the foundations of our faith only used to legitimize the guy that's the foundations of your faith. Yeah. It feels bad. <laughs> Suddenly, this becomes about so much more than a young woman, a prophecy, or even a theology. Can Christians interact with these Jewish texts in a way that doesn't undermine the lived experiences of Jews today? Whose interpretation of Isaiah 7.14 is most accurate, and how will that answer affect how we understand our faiths? How can we love our neighbors when our convictions about this passage feel so personal and so conflicting? answer that, I reached out to a few people who, at this point, have plenty of experience reading the Bible with 
and without Jesus. Uh, I've been interested in Jewish studies since college. This is Professor Mark Brettler. I took a course in Hebrew Bible Old Testament when I was a first-year student in college, and I was bitten by the Bible bug, and I stopped being an economics major very quickly and became a major in your Eastern and Judaic studies at Brandeis University. I continued my studies there. I studied for two years at Hebrew University in Jerusalem as well. He's been teaching the Jewish Bible for years, whether that's through his numerous books or at institutions like Brown University and Yale. He's currently a distinguished professor of Jewish studies at Duke University. When I thought about the Bible, for me, the Bible was only the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. That changed after his work with Oxford University Press. I had done some editing for the new Oxford Annotated Bible, the Jewish Study Bible, and had suggested, and again, I'm not sure if I was really serious about this, of saying, I really like this. I'd like to do something comparable for the New Testament. I am not an expert in the New Testament. I do Jewish studies and Hebrew Bible predominantly. So a dozen or so years ago, he got back to me and said, you know what? I liked your idea. Oxford University Press likes your idea. Uh, why don't you work together with Amy Jill Levine? For me, um, I, I started being interested in biblical studies, biblical studies, when I was a kid because I liked going to Hebrew school. Um, where we actually learned Hebrew, but then we read some biblical materials, or at least I did. Most of my friends didn't care about Hebrew. Amy Jill Levine is also a professor of Jewish studies and of New Testament. But I, w- I was really bitten by this bug, as it were. I-, I thought it was great fun. I thought translation was fun and you could translate things differently. I thought the stories were really interested. I didn't like wisdom literature very much, but boy, I liked those narratives. So it was interesting for me with my Hebrew school teachers, even when I was quite young, debating some of these laws. Why are they there? What are they supposed to do? But, you know, what about this circumstance and what about that circumstance? She's currently a distinguished professor at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. She's also written plenty of books and given hundreds of lectures across the globe. I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly Roman Catholic, so I got interested in, like, their religious practices as well. Um, So when I went off to college, I majored in both English and religion because, again, I like narratives. And I had always thought that New Testament narratives were part of Jewish history because they're all about Jews. Um, Jesus is Jewish and, and all the Marys are Jewish and Peter and Paul, right? Together, they edited the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which brings the Jewish background of these texts to the forefront. For me, New Testament was Jewish history and for me, New Testament is Jewish history. So I don't think I've ever lost that Jewish history part. My problem is convincing other Jews that the New Testament (laughs) is Jewish history. It was the first book of its kind, providing Christian readers a better look into the world of Jesus and his disciples, and providing Jewish readers a window into these texts without any concern over religious agenda. It was widely praised, but Levine and Brettler had much more to say. And and the problem with an annotated Bible is, first of all, the print's really small anyway. And second of all, you can only say so much in notes. And we had chapters worth of material, and we had to condense those chapters into, you know, two sentence, basically sound bites. Um, also, people kept writing to us and saying, but we'd really like more about Adam and Eve, or we'd really like more about uh, Isaiah's servant who suffers, and whether he dies or not is in fact a question, and whether that's Jesus. Um, we want more on the so-called virgin birth in Isaiah, where we could only give just a little, little bit and then a, a short back essay. 
So we thought we have stuff to, to show here. And there's also a sense of uh, correcting people's misperceptions that we also wanted to show. Because if Jews and Christians misunderstand each other, well, misunderstanding leads to bigotry and bigotry leads to hate and hate leads to genocide. Um, so rather than go down that slippery slope, what we wanted to do was show that both Jewish readings of texts that we share um, and Christian readings of texts that we share, even though they disagree, um, actually make some sense. And also to show from an historical perspective what these various texts would have meant in, the, in their own original social and historical circumstances. That want eventually evolved into their book, The Bible With and Without Jesus, How Jews and Christians Read the Same Stories Differently. It's an incredibly insightful book that quickly became a go-to resource as I tried to make sense of Isaiah 7.14. Before we can really explore the heart of this passage, it's important to really understand the controversy surrounding it. Because although this verse is a staple in Christian communities, it appears far less frequently in Jewish conversation. Mark likes to use the image of, of texts that are in 50-point font and texts that are in two-point font. Um, so for Christians, Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a child, and you will call his name Emmanuel. It's like 50 points. In, in Jewish sources, it's kind of meh. <laughs> like, we don't pay any attention to it. It's not a big deal. Um, but because this text gets such heavy play, particularly at Christmas time, mm. with all the stuff about, you know, uh, round yawn virgin, which I used to think was round John virgin. <laughs> Who knew what yawn was? Um, <laughs> in the Christmas carols. And the whole thing about the Virgin Mary. And because this is actually a debate in second century Jewish and Christian sources, already in the second century, they're, they're, they're noodling on this one, um, that we thought that would be a helpful text to look at. Uh, from my own Jewish perspective, when I talked to friends in the synagogue, for example, about this whole virgin birth thing, they just this is nonsense. And Jews would never have believed in some sort of divine conception. And then to go back and look at history, and it turns out, well, at times they did, right? Yeah. So what happens as church and synagogue begin to separate um, what made some sense uh, in first century Judaism, like a divine conception, makes absolutely no sense in fifth century Judaism because, because the barriers are starting to go up. Mm. So part of this is actually reclaiming Jewish history. Abram had mentioned something similar to me in our conversation, that this idea of a divine conception is not a foreign idea in the Jewish Bible. It can even be found in places that would surprise Christians as well. Samson, in a way, also had this, you know, demigod's birth, and I find it odd that that's not something we're talked about in Christian literature. I did a very like deep Google dive trying to find anyone talking about it, you know, online before I like, came up, and I couldn't. Just odd, because Samson's also not the only one in the Torah who had that kind of birth. So it just feels very strange to me. But that's not something that's more brought up. Why us Christians don't talk about Samson's birth is a topic worth devoting a whole other episode to. The point for now, though, is that this idea is here in the Jewish Bible and other ancient Jewish literature as well. There's an early sort of history biography, really hagiography, mm. of the Baal Shem Tov, who is the founder of Hasidism. Mm. And it's called In Praise of the Baal Shem Tov. And in the earliest edition, virgin birth is attributed to his mother, mm. uh, 
that later got cleaned up in some later versions. So some would have it, some would not. So again, as AJ said, this probably was an idea which existed to some extent within Judaism of the period, but often what happens in the New Testament and you know the import what you were just asking about the importance of Isaiah seven fourteen is one example the importance of the uh, suffering servant from the end of Isaiah chapter fifty two and all of Isaiah fifty three is mm-hmm. another example a text or an idea which is present in the pre-New Testament period, but not terribly important, suddenly becomes extra important in the New Testament period with a certain type of rebalancing. And that is really the case with uh, virgin birth as well. So despite what Christians may expect, the core concern for Jews here has nothing to do with this idea of a virgin birth. Now, what is a problem is the fact that Matthew is using Isaiah 7.14 of all passages as a prophecy for virgin birth, when the original verse seems to have absolutely nothing to do with that. Let's take a step back and look at the historical context this verse was written in, because it's going to be really important. Isaiah 7 says its story takes place in the days of Ahaz, who was a king of Judah. Even more specifically, this narrative is about the Syro-Ephraimite War, around 700 years before Jesus, where the northern kingdom of Israel and their Aramean neighbor Damascus were teaming up to fight the Assyrian Empire. Israel and Damascus went to Judah to join forces with them to take on the Assyrians, but King Ahaz rejected them, fearing their empire was too powerful to overthrow. Instead, he gave in to the Assyrians, making Judah a vassal state for them. This is where Isaiah comes into the picture, who goes to King Ahaz on God's behalf to condemn him. Isaiah urges Ahaz to trust God and his promises rather than rely on military alliances. It's part of a larger theme in the book about God's promise to protect the city of Jerusalem, and that there was no need for Judah to fear defeat if they were willing to fully rely on God. Isaiah tells Ahaz, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. God reminds the king that their kingdoms will not stand, but also warns, if you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. God tells Ahaz to ask for a sign to help his unbelief, but Ahaz refuses the offer. Isaiah, not taking no for an answer, gives him a sign from God anyways. Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. For before the child knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. In the narrative, it's kind of understandable why Jews are thrown off by Matthew's interpretation. Isaiah is saying that when the kingdom of Judah trusts that God is with us, they would overcome the other kingdoms that threaten them. Though they may be in a scary situation at that moment, By the time an unborn child is old enough to eat solid food, the threat of Assyrians would be gone. 
and the kingdom would be in a time of prosperity. Isaiah doesn't seem to have any eyes on a Messiah hundreds of years in the future. He's trying to help Ahaz see the deliverance God was offering in that moment of time. The prophecy is deeply rooted in the historical events that surround it. With how pivotal this prophecy is for many Christians, it seems really odd none of this ever seems to come up. Taking a single paragraph out of what is a very long section of spoken word and using it to make a point when there is a lot of things within that section of spoken word that contradict that point, very weird. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Incredibly weird. It's not typically how we operate. That's not something that we're grown up to, like raised to do mm. and think and taught how to approach scripture. You look at it as a whole. And if you're looking at a specific section of it, you have to take into account what it's coming from. But what about the virgin birth? That's not something that was ever fulfilled in the book of Isaiah or in the history of the Syro-Ephraimite war. If Isaiah is talking about a miracle only realized through Jesus, then the prophecy still stands regardless of its context. That question remains then, is Isaiah's prophecy about a pregnant young woman or a virgin still to come? To answer that, we need to look at this verse in its original language. Going back to their book, The Bible With and Without Jesus, Professor Levine and Brettler explain that the Hebrew word Isaiah uses here is ha-ama-hara. Ama can be used to refer to young girls, like Moses' sister who followed the basket down the river. Or it could mean a woman of marriageable age. For instance, the first time the word is used is when Abraham's servant is looking for a wife for Isaac. He makes a plan of standing by the water spring, testing the Alma who come to draw water. But while the woman's virginity could be implied in most cases, translating it to simply mean virgin is kind of misleading. You see, Alma is just the feminine form of Elem, and the few times that word is used, it simply means boy or young man. It's used as an indicator of age, never sexual status. If Isaiah wanted to talk about a virgin, he could have really easily used the Hebrew word betelah, which would have been perfect. Issues continue to grow for Christians when looking at how Isaiah phrases the rest of his sentence too. In the original Hebrew, the adjective he uses, hurrah, means that the person is currently pregnant. Grammatically, there's no way for it to mean a future condition. When it comes to Hebrew, from the grammar to the words themselves, Isaiah isn't talking about a virgin. Everything points to Isaiah saying, behold, the pregnant young woman. But what about the sign? Isaiah told King Ahaz that this would be a sign. How could it be one without the birth being miraculous in some way? Wouldn't this baby have to be from a virgin for it to even qualify as a sign? The Hebrew word for a sign is an alt, and a sign in the Hebrew Bible, or more properly an alt in the Hebrew Bible, is not necessarily miraculous. 
clearly the way in which it is being understood in the early Christian tradition. And this sometimes does happen. It's a reason, it's a very reasonable reading, but not the only reading. Mm. They take the word ought as a sign of something very unusual. They understand the Parthenos in the sense of virgin. And you put these various readings together, and then it fits very nicely with early Christian conceptions. It's a, it's a good retrospective reading here. Um, mm. In the Gospel of John, Jesus doesn't do miracles, for which the Greek term is dynamis, like where we get the word dynamic. Yeah. But he does signs, say Maya, which is where we get the word semiotics. Mm. Um, so the first of his signs, turning water into wine at Cana, or raising Lazarus from the dead, or healing somebody. So these are all signs. So for early Christians, and you can see this in the second century in the work of a fellow named Justin Martyr, a sign has to be miraculous. So therefore, the sign of this uh, woman or virgin has to be a miracle. And Jews, you know, Jews are saying, no, I mean, circumcision is a sign of the covenant. That's not a miracle. It's a medical procedure. Right. Um, so even how we interpret these terms, what nuances we give them, that's going to make a difference, too. So while a sign can be miraculous, it doesn't have to be. And based off of what we already know about how Isaiah has phrased this prophecy, he probably wasn't thinking of anything supernatural. What he seems to be doing is pointing out a pregnant young woman in the company of Ahaz and reassuring everyone that that child would grow up in a safe, prospering Judah. Whenever they would see the woman or her child, they would be reminded in the middle of a war that God was with them. While that may have been reassuring to King Ahaz's court, it just kind of feels confusing for Christians today. When did the idea of virgin birth start to come into the conversation with this verse? So uh, it, it got to the point around, you know, the late 4th, early 3rd century BCE. Alexander the Great is 333, just for a reference point. Uh, you've got Jews living outside the land of Israel who can't speak Aramaic. They don't know any Hebrew and they need to read their text. And their language was Greek. So you wind up first with the Pentateuch, the first five books, and then the later text being translated into Greek. So based on the old Italian proverb, which translates, so I'm obviously going to get this wrong, uh, a translator, a traitor. Whenever you translate something, stuff goes in that doesn't belong, that, that wasn't there originally, because all words have connotations. And stuff goes out that did belong. The Septuagint was originally a Jewish translation. Hmm. The Septuagint translation of Alma in Isaiah 7.14 was as Parthenos. At the time that that translation was made, Parthenos had a variety of meanings, which could include you know, a virgin in a biological sense, but could also include you know, a woman of marriageable age. And ultimately, the way it is understood in the New Testament tradition is one of the Greek, one of the possibilities that is offered by the Greek term. These are all truly legitimate translations, yeah. and this should not be surprising that where you are coming from should really influence how you understand and thus how you translate the text. So what happens is Isaiah's uh, Almahara, a pregnant woman of marriageable age, uh, winds, winds up being a Parthenos who will conceive. Um, so you go from an adjective pregnant to a verb will conceive, and you go from Alma, young woman of marriageable age, to Parthenos, which could mean young woman of marriageable age, but it could also mean a virgin, like the Parthenon or Parthenogenesis. Um, so Matthew, a couple of centuries later, reading the only Bible that they've got, which is 
you know, the scriptures of Israel, except they're in Greek, so we can't call it the Hebrew Bible. The Septuagint sees, oh, look, a virgin will conceive and bear a child. And Matthew, impacted by Jewish stories of miraculous conception, let alone Greek and Roman stories of miraculous conception, because it's not as if, you know, everybody's living in some sort of Jewish bat, you know, vacuum attributes to Jesus what other Jews had attributed to uh, Melchizedek, this priest king who shows up in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, um, and perhaps uh, to Samson, or perhaps uh, Abraham got some help given, given age and lack of Viagra with the miraculous conception of Isaac. So, it, And Philo suggests that. So Jews already have a sense of miraculous conceptions. Matthew just one-ups it. This is not just a miraculous conception. It's a miraculous conception to a woman who's never had sex before. Well, how cool is that? But it fits within that broader Jewish tradition as well as the broader Greek and Roman tradition. Mm. Jews who are in the land of Israel or in points east uh, who are reading Hebrew, look at their text and say, this is a pregnant young woman. Where do you get this virgin conceiving? Well, they get it from the Greek. And, and that's actually incredibly important, but this is one of the many indications that even though so many people think the Hebrew Bible equal the Old Testament, that really is not the case. Okay, yeah. To kind of summarize things, it's certainly possible in the Greek translation of Isaiah 14 that he's talking about this, um, this miraculous virgin birth. That is one interpretation of the Greek translation. It's a legitimate it's a legitimate reading of the Greek, but it is not a legitimate reading of the Hebrew. If you're anything like me, that comment may make you queasy. We now have a clear answer of what Isaiah meant when he first spoke this prophecy, but it feels in conflict with what I was taught as a Christian, and in some ways it feels threatening to my faith. All of those concerns about Matthew's credibility, Jesus' character, all come to the forefront now. If the Gospel's interpretations of this prophecy isn't allowed in the original text, what does that mean for us Christians and our faith? We'll get to that more in just a minute. In the meantime, let's take a quick breath as we process what we've covered so far. We'll be right back. Let's look at what we've learned so far. Isaiah 7.14 is a passage that has been hotly debated for thousands of years. Christians have always seen it as a prediction of Jesus' virgin birth, but in its historical context and its original language, we can see that Isaiah had his eye on current events of his time. In the Hebrew text, he makes very clear that he's talking about a young woman who is already pregnant at the time he's speaking. When this passage was translated to Greek though, this became a little more ambiguous. Ambiguous enough for other interpretations to arise, including one of a future virgin birth to come. Matthew sees this reading when he was writing about Jesus' birth in the Gospel, and Christians have read the passage that way ever since. The chain of events makes sense, but 
it still feels incredibly uncomfortable for Christian readers. Relying on a translation of a translation to justify a key prophecy to our faith kind of just feels like a religious game of telephone. We believe that this is God's word, that it should be honored, respected, and certainly not manipulated. But then how can we come to terms with the original Hebrew text? I had to unpack these concerns with Professor Levine and Brettler in order to get to the bottom of it. Does the fact that the original Hebrew not allowed this interpretation, does that make it so that this interpretation is just straight up invalid? I wouldn't say that the original is not allowing the translation. It it, it allows it at the periphery. It's Mm. certainly not encouraging this translation uh, in the same way that the Greek is. And I want to pick up on a a phrase that you used before, and then I'll answer your question a little more broadly. You talked about the Bible as a text that uh, we're supposed to meditate, that it was originally written for us to meditate on. Just something important for all of your listeners to realize is in the case of the Hebrew Bible, I'm not sure that any of these texts were written as Bible. Mm. They were written as texts, which then became part of the Bible, and context determines a whole lot. Mm. So these texts were not originally meditated on. They were mo- one of many texts which were describing similar events. But once they become canonical, a term which is now a little bit problematic, uh, they become authoritative, another problematic term, (laughs) and then they eventually become meditated on. But to use your phraseology of, are you betraying the original text? I mean, the wonderful thing about any scriptural text that allows it to be, to be scriptural is that it is not understood as having a single meaning, which is the meaning which it originally meant. Now, I don't want to get into politics, but you know, this is really very similar to the Constitution, mm. right? Where many people read the Constitution as saying, well, yes, you know, this certainly had a meaning in the 1800s. But uh, we are not going to be able to confine ourselves to the meaning. Mm. Now, let me talk about a very important difference between the Constitution and the Bible. I mean, I I remind everybody that the Constitution can be amended, Mm. you know, and thankfully, as in the case of slavery and the abolition of slavery, you know, it, it it was amended, you know, at some point the biblical text, and here it doesn't matter whether we're talking, certainly Jewishly to some extent within the Christian world, there are some differences here. Uh, The biblical text cannot be changed. It physically cannot be changed. I cannot change the last word of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 from Echad 1 to Shnaim 2 and claim that that there are two gods out there. so the only way of changing the inter- of changing what the text means, how the text will function, and allowing the text to function in a strong way within a religious community is through interpretation. Mm-hmm. And as such, yeah, I mean the original author might be upset. You know, all the original authors are quite dead. <laughs> but uh, you know, once we start thinking about scripture, which 
it goes beyond the notion of Bible or Quran because scripture refers to the function of a text within a religious community. The original intent of the text is no longer determinative. Mm. If you could get it in the first place. Um, mm. Yeah. Right. So, you know, like I write, Mark and I write something and then people write to us and say, did you mean? Mm. We're thinking, no, actually we did. <laughs> we hadn't thought about that, but that's a really good idea. Um so as soon as you release something in writing, it's out there for whomever to interpret it. And it may have been the case, it wouldn't surprise me, that Isaiah said something or Jesus said something and you know, half a dozen people hear it and they take half a dozen different messages from it. Mm. In the same way that people listening to your podcast may conclude that Mark and I you know, are fervent deniers of anything of value in Christianity, which could not be farthest from the case. But some people are going to think that because you know, we're Jews. Um, and other people are going to think, well, oh, mine is the best thing I've ever heard, and, and it may well be, uh, but that's also a limited view. Right. So even when we write, we have to take the risk that we might be misunderstood. Today, we have the benefit of you know people being able to write to us and say, did you mean this? Back then, we can't do that. Mm. So if I were to talk to Isaiah, like, did you mean the king's wife who's standing over there, you know, <laughs> Tiffany or whatever her name was? Um <laughs> How would we know? Yeah, and a good example of the how do we know, which we discuss in the book, is the last words of Jesus on the cross, where uh, it is a quote from Psalm 22, but exactly what those first two words, you know, Eli, Eli, do they mean, my God, my God? Is this a reference to Elijah, possibly? Uh, this already was probably very unclear as soon as the tradition started that these were the last words of Jesus on the cross. And, and they're only the last words in two out of four Gospels. Mm. Yes, thank you. As we explored how we approach interpretation, I kept thinking about my friend Abram and the concerns he brought up with how Christians approach the Hebrew Bible. To him, these documents aren't just any old group of stories. These are texts deeply rooted in Jewish history and the Jewish experience. For Christians to come along and to see these prophecies that carry so much cultural weight and to use them as foreshadowing for Jesus can feel like we're divorcing the passages from what they were actually meant for. It comes to view us as people as like this sort of proto-religion, as like this culture that came before your culture and is no longer relevant. It shouldn't be around anymore. And it's just... It feels very dehumanizing to be treated that way. And they would know that, like, they don't think of you as, like, a full person with a faith and, like, a relationship with God that's different than their own because they don't think of your religion as being its own religion and don't really understand even, like, the fact that your religion could be different. Because for them, you just believe in some of the stories and you just haven't read the rest of them. Have you read the rest of them? Have you read about Jesus? I wanted to make sure to bring these concerns up with Professors Levine and Brettler to hear how they would parse through them. Um, is that a, a sentiment that you guys have, have seen or um, have felt, experience? I've seen it. I don't like it. Um, because I think, I think it's a misjudging of what the early followers of Jesus did. I don't think they're grasping hmm. at straws. Um, I think that they're convinced that Jesus came back from the dead and the messianic age has, has begun. Uh, so the only Bible they've got is, is this Hebrew text and probably some, some of the Greek editions as well. 
Um, and now in light of this new view that they have of the Messianic age beginning, they go back and they read the text that they've read before and they see things they haven't noticed before. I don't think they're grasping at straws. That's, that's a very negative way of understanding what, what early followers of Jesus did. I think they're simply rereading with Jesus colored lenses. Um, but we all do that because whenever we go back and we look at a text, we're trying to say, what does this text mean to me in my own personal context? I mean, it's not like first century Jews were we're using the historical critical method and saying, Joe, I wonder what this meant at the time of Isaiah. Um, so they're always saying, let's go back and let's read anew in light of our new circumstances. So to, to look at Christians as, as manipulating the text, I, I'm not sure that's quite the right term. Mm. Yeah, I would second that. And I find the word dehumanizing uh, much too strong. And I would not use that particular term. So let's go back to the image that AJ and I use about font size. I mean, the bottom line is the Bible more or less is printed all in the same font size. I'll talk about the more or less in a minute. Uh, and different faith communities, based on their understanding of what is more important and what is less important, read it as if certain verses are more important and as if certain verses are less important and can more or less be forgotten about. You know, this is done in other ways as well. So it is the case that the entire Torah, the entire uh, Pentateuch, or is it sometimes mislabeled five books of the law, are read within Judaism, uh, not all of the prophetic material is read. And thus, some prophecies which are read liturgically, whether in the prayer book in the Siddur or whether as prophetic readings after the Torah reading, they inevitably become better known and more important, although we might have a chicken and egg question here, which I'm not going to get into. Uh, and in terms of the exceptions of being written in larger fonts, there are a very small number of biblical letters that are written in larger or smaller fonts in a Torah scroll. And uh, one case is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord is alone. Two of the letters there, the last letter of the word Shema, and the last, which means here, and the last letter of the word Echad, one or alone, is written larger in Torah scrolls. And that probably is a way of saying, hey, like really pay attention to this verse. This verse is you know, a super important verse in Judaism. But to be very trite, that is more or less the exception that proves the rule. Mm. By and large, everything is in the same font. And different faith communities, even different groups within Judaism, more or less will privilege different sections of the Bible by effectively writing them in larger or smaller fonts. Mm. Jews who care about ritual will uh, highlight those verses and put them in 50-point fonts. Uh, Jews who care little for many of the rituals will put you know, the first half of Leviticus in two or three-point fonts. But suddenly, when you get to Leviticus 19.18, the second part, quite important in the New Testament as well, you, know, you shall love thy neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. You know, those Jews would put that in 50-point in fifty point fonts. And to make this last point about different communities and font sizes, 
And this is why I latched on to both of these verses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, in the second half of Leviticus chapter 19, 18. This is a slightly unusual case. The beginning of Genesis may be another one, where both Judaism and Christianity put the same verses or the same chapters in larger font. Mm. Because within Judaism, the Shema prayer is very important. Loving your neighbor as yourself is very, is very important. And of course, this is related to you know, the greatest commandments passages that you have in the Synoptic Gospels. So I would imagine in Christianity, these verses would also be highlighted through a larger font size. I, I guess the question is, where did the disconnect happen where um, Isaiah 7 started to become more important for Christians and um, why is it less uh, in, in less font for others? Yeah, I'm going to, again, going back to what AJ said earlier, I'd be careful with the word disconnect. Mm. I mean, it's it's a different connect mm. rather, rather than a disconnect. And I'll let AJ jump in here for a second, but let me just introduce this, that once you have the notion, which clearly existed in Second Temple times, and we know this from the Dead Sea Scroll literature, that prophetic literature was not meant only or not meant primarily for the time in which it was given. So this is from Isaiah. It is a text from the eighth pre-Christian century. But several centuries later, the idea developed, hold on. No, no, no. These were not only our primarily texts meant mm. for the time in which they were given, but they are texts which continue to be infused with meaning. And to use an idea that you have in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that maybe even Isaiah, although it was said of a different prophet, didn't really understand what he meant, and that he was mm. really just the divine mouthpiece for something that would be important later. So once all of these ideas become together, and especially once scripture starts to become scripture, please don't ask me to define that term because that, that will take me through, you know, we're, we're here at 1030, that will take me through dinner. But once scripture starts to become scripture, and the notion is that it needs to be ever relevant, mm. then some, you'll excuse me, some obscure verse dealing with some obs obscure Alma, a woman of marriageable age, in the 8th century is going to seem rather trivial, and uh, different religious communities will recover the importance of the verse in various ways based on their own belief system. This has opened up all kinds of cans of worms, which is exactly what I've been hoping for. Um, not only to kind of encourage people to read the book that you guys spent so much time on, um, which is such a helpful uh, resource and was a helpful resource for me as I kind of walked through this, um, but also to kind of continue on the, the conversation that um, we've been kind of working through. Um, so I, I guess the question then, is um what are the um what are the key takeaways that you kind of hope people um take from this conversation and from um 
your chapter on Isaiah 714. Well, I want to change your metaphor because I don't like the idea of can of worms. Yeah. First of all, I don't like worms. And the very idea of opening <laughs> a can and finding a worm in it, I would find disgusting and then want nothing to do with it. So I don't think we've actually opened a can of worms mm. or, or something that's negative or toxic or disgusting mm. um, or just gross. Um, I, I think what the book does is open us to the way the text gives rise to different readings, mm. which then can help us understand why our neighbors uh, read differently than we do. And at the end of every chapter, we say, okay, now that we've done the history and we've looked at what Isaiah might have meant in his own context and how uh, Jews in the late Second Temple period, the time of Jesus, would have understood this text, how it gets deployed, and sometimes variously how it gets deployed in the New Testament. And then what do post-biblical non-Christian Jews do with this, say, in rabbinic mm. sources? To say, well, now that we've done all this history and we've seen polemic, how do we move from polemic to possibilities? And and if the idea that the biblical text is inexhaustible in meaning, which I think it is, because mm. every time you go back to it, you're going to pose new questions or you might see new things. And that's why rabbis and pastors and priests uh, and homilists can keep seeing, you know, they're not taking out the same sermon every year, one hopes. Right. Um, you know, what What can we do, Jews and Christians and, and people of no tradition, what can we do now if we read this text together? What does this text say to us? If you say, uh, look at that pregnant young woman over there, or, you know, behold, a virgin will conceive. So mm. what does this tell us about contemporary healthcare and pregnancy? Mm. And who's going to provide her prenatal help? And what's going to happen to the child after he's born? And what kind of a sign are we seeing today? And I think those are all very legitimate questions that are sparked by the Bible. Mm. Would, if, would Isaiah be thinking of Roe v. Wade? No, obviously not. But that doesn't stop the text from raising new questions. And, and I think that's, that's in part what keeps Scripture alive, is that those communities that hold that text to be somehow sacred or somehow revelatory still have to be able to speak to the communities in the present. Mm. Yeah, I was going to start the same way AJ started, of objecting to the can of worms. I mean, I, I sometimes do write can of worms sorts of things where I try to tell people, you know what, this idea that you've been thinking since you were young enough to hear it from your parents is absolutely wrong. Or sometimes <laughs> I'll write in this, sometimes I'll write, try to write maybe a little more subtly than uh, to illustrate something that the that Abby Hoffman said that sacred cows make the best hamburger. Okay. But they, that, that, that was not my goal. And that was not our goal in this particular book. Mm. And let me just say to really illustrate this, the most important word in the title is the word. And mm. there certainly are books which are or books or either or books. Mm. And indeed at some point when AJ and I got the proofs for the book back you know, on the top of the page, it has the title and it had the Bible with or without Jesus. And mm. we, you know, I think AJ was then in Rome, I was then in Jerusalem, and we could hear each other scream as we looked at those proofs. Because there are times for or, mm. you know, there are truths. I mean, I, I do not believe that truths are lacking in this world, but I very strongly believe that uh, in terms of 
the way in which the Bible can be read, we need to talk about ands rather than ors. Mm. And something that is very important in terms of Jews and Christians reading more or less the same Bible together is that certainly they read it within their own faith communities and they use it uh, in very, or their own communities, their own ethnic communities as well in the case of Judaism. And they use the Bible as a way of developing their religious and other ideas. Yet, nevertheless, what we're really encouraging people to do in this book is to say, yes, please do use the Bible within your own religion, but please do understand in a much more sympathetic way, mm. in a non-polemical way, in a way, AJ used the term earlier, uh, possibilities, not polemic, why your neighbors understand the very same verses, perhaps in some cases due to translation issues, but not always, in very different ways. And given that each community really needs to understand that we are not originalists, within each community we understand the Bible in ways that it did not originally mean when it was written. Please you know, have some common courtesy mm. and allow your neighbors to understand it in a non-originalist way as fashion, uh, way. And please respect them for that and respect those interpretations, even if you do not, or especially if you do not take those interpretations mm. as your own. This element of respect is essential if we're going to have any kind of beneficial growth. If we really believe that these texts are truly scripture, then God should be able to bring out unique wisdom that speaks into our context. And if we take God's commandment to love one another seriously, that means we should create space to explore Isaiah and the rest of the Hebrew Bible with those of a different faith, seeking to learn and not to argue. Even if we don't agree or can't agree, we've given each other an opportunity to know one another better and to love one another better. If we don't take the time to care and learn from our neighbors, we can easily end up dismissing or marginalizing other people instead. That means that we give up hearing a divine truth we hadn't seen before and reinforced walls that make each other more miserable. It reminds me of something Abram told me. He shared his experience with Christians who didn't take the time to care or listen and understand his faith. And that just kind of reflects the experience you have trying to speak about religion with a lot of sects of Christians. Is it just kind of feels like your religion is like a precursor or like the missing link that they see and they're like, oh, we have so much in common because your religion is what my religion is based on. So to you, like these passages I talk about and stuff like, wow, that's so quaint. It's kind of like like a wild cat and then you look at your domesticated cats and you're like, wow, love you, you, you know? And <laughs> It feels weird. Um, it feels very weird to be looked at as if you're like a living museum exhibit or to be spoken to as if you're like believing in something that just shouldn't exist anymore because there's this new modern shiny thing you should be believing in. And Abram is far from the only one who's had this kind of experience with Christians. We wrote the book in part, um, and this is particularly for me because I, I, I'm primarily working in Christian origins. Mm. The people kept writing to me and saying, Dr. Levine, 
If you just read the Old Testament, so here the Christian label, right? If you just read the Old Testament carefully, you would be able to connect the dots and see how they all point to Jesus. And in fact, if you read through Christian lenses, they do. It's retrospective, but it doesn't mean it's an illegitimate reading. Mm. Um, so the book shows, well, you know, if you read the text through Jewish lenses, you don't even see the dots, but you see a bunch of other things. So recognize that your way of reading is not the only way of reading. And at mm. the same time, to be able to say to Jews, no, these Christian readings are not nonsense. They make they make sense given early Christian presuppositions and Christians wanting to hang on to the scripture, but finding new meaning in it in the light of Jesus, rather than just saying, let's chuck the entire Hebrew Bible or whatever whatever they would have called it back then. Yeah. Um, and we'll just be a kind of New Testament church. And the sad thing is that in the second century, there was a fellow named Marcion who wanted to chuck the whole thing and say, it was, a, you know, the Old Testament God is a different God. And, you know, Jesus comes to reveal a good God rather than an inept one. And there are people today on the Catholic and Protestant side saying, let's just jettison the Old Testament. It's a crappy text. We don't need it. Yeah. And that's just such a bad idea historically as well as theologically. And I think Jesus would have been appalled by that idea. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus would have been appalled because he certainly would have said, hey, you can't understand what I'm talking about right. without, without this particular collection. And let me just pick up on AJ's letters and talk about a letter. I think it's even in the pre-email era that I got, which really helped me uh, want to do this particular project. So the Bible that I edited right before this is called the Jewish Study Bible, which is just of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament. It's also gone through two editions. And right after the first edition came out, a woman wrote a letter to me, Christian woman, and she said, it, it never occurred to me that Isaiah chapter 53 could be read in any way other than in reference to Jesus. Mm. And that's the so-called suffering servant. Yeah. Suffering servant is actually a modern term. And that's, that, that letter, uh, I hope the person is listening to this podcast, I can remember who this is, but that letter was really incredibly important for me and made me realize how essential it is to teach each people on the religious divide, how the other, other types of interpretation are feasible and thus to uh, sort of remove the religious divide so it is not such a strong divide. What are what are those things that, because of that tradition, Christians may not see as clearly? Well, I'll say, I mean, they're overlooking the possibility that it could refer to somebody other than Jesus, quite simplistically. Mm. And they're also... And Judaism does this as well as Christianity. So this is not a criticism of Christianity or of the early Jesus movement. They are decontextualizing this verse. They are not reading this verse in its larger chapter, where the larger chapter is really about uh, divine protection for Judah and the inviolability of Jerusalem, that Jerusalem is not going to be destroyed, which is a main theme of the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah. So mm -hmm. that when you focus with a you know, telescope only on that single verse of chapter seven, mm -hmm. and only on really several, several words of that verse, mm -hmm. you're not seeing the broader context and you're losing the larger message of the chapter. Yeah. Our concern is if the text has ongoing meaning, um, uh, 
And if from the Christian perspective, even if you think that Isaiah 7.14 is fulfilled in the conception of Jesus, which is what Matthew tells you, that should not be able to, that should not lead you to say, okay, I can, I can take this verse out and put it up on the shelf and put a check mark next to it and said, been there, done that. Now let's figure out how we can check, remove other verses from, from the Old Testament. Mm. I don't think that's helpful. So from a Christian perspective, it can refer to Jesus, but it should not be limited to Jesus. Mm. And then let's see what else we can do with it. And from Jews who probably don't look at this text at all, because it's not going to show up in our liturgy. Um, what might we do with this text? How might we understand the king at the time or asking for a sign? And when do we ask and when do we not ask? And what could be a sign? Because anything can be a sign. Again, as Mark pointed out, ot in Hebrew, the word for sign doesn't have to have miraculous context to it. Mm. Um, you know, look at Amos, look at a basket of summer fruit. That's a sign. Circumcision is a sign. Um, uh, Shabbat, the Sabbath is a sign. Right. Uh, a mezuzah on your door um, is a sign. Um, so what other signs might we be seeing in the broader story? What does it say about the role of women and children during war? Because this is Isaiah 1 through 36 is actually part of that. It's the Syro-Ephraimite war. So who might be attacking? What happens then? What do you expect from your ruler? Um, how do you get in touch with the ruler? If you if you have a message, you know, how, how do you get in touch with the governor, let alone the president? What's going to happen to this woman? So once you say, okay, it means Jesus if you're a Christian, but it means other things. Then the text opens up to multiple interpretations. That's much more interesting. Um, it's more honoring of the text itself as having potentially multiple meanings, as any text does. And it allows Jews and Christians to come together and say, all right, now that we're going to read as a broader community, what do we see in this text? I think that's a healthy mm. exercise. Mm. Yeah, and let, let me just one up that. It's not only interesting in honoring the text, but it is recognizing uh, the tradition that both Judaism and Christianity hold, mm. that the text is super infused with meaning. And if it's super infused with meaning, then uh, the, the Christological interpretation of Isaiah 714 probably should not inhabit all of the possible meanings mm. of that verse. Mm. I, that's really, really helpful. Thank you. Thank you both. We started this conversation with a question that's been around for centuries. The concern of whose interpretation of Isaiah 714 is correct. But as we've explored this passage and how we relate to it, it's becoming increasingly clear that this question is fundamentally flawed. When we look at this verse in its original context, the history and the language all seem to point towards the idea that Isaiah wasn't meaning to predict a virgin birth when he wrote this prophecy. That is not to say, though, that Matthew was wrong for using this verse to point to Jesus. God continues to speak through his word today and give us wisdom we never could have seen before, and in ways that we can never expect. The same is true for Jews and Christians today, that is, if we allow it. When we discuss the Bible, we often get so absorbed in the debate that we lose sight of what more God could be trying to reveal to us. We use the scripture as a weapon rather than as wisdom literature. But when we create space for it to speak into our lives in ways that we hadn't seen before, it opens the door to a deeper relationship with the text, with each other, and with God. There is so much more to learn from Isaiah 7.14 and many other contentious passages. 
if you'd like to learn more about them, I can't recommend Dr. Levine and Brettler's book enough. Tell, tell your listeners that the name of the book is The Bible Within Without Jesus. Um, it's also out in a Portuguese translation and it's about to come out in a German translation. So if, if oh, English wow. is not your first language, you've got options. No, and all I would say is it was great fun doing it with AJ. Mm. Uh, you know, frankly, it is not the easiest book to read, but I think that it really, we produced an important book mm. for Jews, Christians, and for pretty much for anybody to read who wants a broader understanding of how the Hebrew Bible Old Testament uh, was once understood and has been understood over the ages. And could still be understood, you know, today and tomorrow. 